This week I had an opportunity to mull through one of these uh, online surveys that were done and released. This particular one had to do with the worldview of those who profess to be Christians in America, but as well as the pastors. It was a survey called the American Worldview Inventory from the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University. And it revealed some really uh, startling discoveries, particularly in this area of the percentage of pastors in the American church and their worldview. So I'm going to show you a couple of graphics from this in a moment here, but their release paper states this. People have expectations of pastors of Christian churches. One of those expectations is that pastors possess a philosophy of life that largely reflects biblical principles. We'd want that, right? A perspective commonly called a biblical worldview. This survey, though, was shocking in that it revealed that a large majority of Christian pastors do not possess a solid and complete biblical worldview. In fact, just over a third only, we would say, possessed a Christian biblical worldview based on the categories that, of questions that they were asked. And over two-thirds had some type of syncretized, some hybrid hodgepodge uh, compilation of worldviews, right? A blended, synthesized views from a lot of different ideologies, not just one from God's Word. So let me show you the first uh, slide there on this survey. It might be a little hard to see, but this is the percentage of Christian pastors that possess a Christian worldview based on their position, whether they were lead pastors, executive pastors, whether they were children's ministry pastors or youth pastors. And you could see here the senior lead pastor, only 41% of lead pastors of Christian churches in America possessed a complete and solid biblical worldview the startling discovery here is that look at these children's and youth pastors. Those teaching our emerging generations don't even have the standard of God's word, a biblical worldview to be teaching the generations coming up in the church. And those that are charged with the operational direction of the church, overseeing the ministries of the church, the budgets of the church, 4%. Are they even Christians? We don't know. But that's kind of part of the CEO model of American evangelicalism. And so we don't really care what their biblical worldview is. Are they good with the budgets and reports and those kind of things? That's kind of sad, isn't it? Look at this next part of the survey that assessed them by their particular denominational family. Okay? So 37%, right? Just over a third of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview, right? And then looking at some of the different denominational families here, non-denominational independent churches, kind of like ours, 57% have a biblical worldview. Your mainline Protestant evangelical churches, 51%, just over half. That's nothing to really write home about either. But then look how it drops here. Charismatic Pentecostal, 37%. Mainline Protestant denominations like the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, and others, 32%. Holiness churches, traditional black Protestant, and Catholic. There's no biblical worldview. That's disturbing, isn't it? It's alarming. Look at this last one here. 
This is by church size. And I thought this was interesting as well. By average adult attendance, right, churches really of 250 or less, uh, this is kind of weird how they had it broken down, but it's about 45%, thereabouts roughly, 37 to 45%. Smaller churches typically have a little bit more of a solid biblical worldview, but the larger the church gets, it's less of a biblical church view. That's disturbing. It's disturbing. Now, there's a lot of reasons, I think, for that. Uh, Part of it is the larger a church gets, the more consumer-driven they tend to be, attractional, uh, and they may cater then to uh, the demographic of the community there and provide things and uh, kind of more like TED Talks and therapeutic sessions and, uh, you know, it's more socially program-driven. So there's a lot of reasons, perhaps, for that. But it's telling us something about the state of the church, right? And, it's, and it's, it's easy to see, I think, when you see something from a survey like this, that if the shepherds of these churches are in this sad of a shape, then there's not much reason to wonder why the church finds itself in the situation that it is in today, right? Sheep, shepherd, not in good shape. Not in good shape at all. So it's not a surprise. We've seen the slide in the influence of the church as it's been influenced by the culture, We've seen the weakening stance of the church in regards to uh, biblical truth. And so the sad thing is when the worldview of the church and the worldview of the prevailing culture of our time are largely indiscernible, what are you going to find in the church but gross error, false teaching, and sadly apostasy? And that's what we have in the American church by and large. So when we're looking here at this this distortion in our understanding of the role and purpose and authority of the church of Jesus Christ, when we have a situation like this in our world today where God's word is no longer the standard for our ecclesiology, for how we do church or our philosophy of ministry or what we're proclaiming from the pulpits of, of our churches, it's no wonder the church is in such a sad shape as it is. Um, so what we've been endeavoring to do here is, is to get a biblical understanding of the church. What is the church? What's its role? What's its purpose? What is the authority that the church actually has over the life of a believer? And today we're going to continue in that a little bit further, uh, looking at this passage written from Paul to a pastor, a pastor of a church, addressing something specifically to a body of believers That comprised a local congregation. We're continuing with our same main point as last week, that the local church matters because it is God's design for each believer to be submitted to and be part of a local community for their spiritual formation. Let's turn to the word of the Lord, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Hear the words of the living God. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are the words of the Lord. 
Last week we began seeking to answer that question, what is the church? By definition, we looked at the word that Jesus chose to define his people, ecclesia. The Greek word, that means a gathering or assembly of a people that are called for a particular purpose. Jesus could have chosen any word to describe his people, but he chose one that talked about them being a gathered group of people, right? Very important. Uh, We looked at the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and its two definitions for the universal and invisible church of Jesus Christ, as well as the local and visible church of Jesus Christ. We said that the universal and invisible church of Jesus Christ was the whole number of God's elect. All of the people of God from all of the ages of church history, including past saints of the Old Testament who look forward to the promise uh, of the Messiah, those make up the universal church of Jesus Christ. They're invisible in that only the Lord knows that number. And only the Lord knows who truly are all that are His. Then there's the other dimension of the church, which is the one that we can see, which is the one that right now all of us are part of the local and visible church of Jesus Christ made up of visible saints, those who profess to know Jesus Christ, who make a profession of faith, who are part of the church via baptism, who are sitting under the ministry of of the word, who are living uh, as part of spiritual community. These are the visible saints of God. So we say they're also part of the universal church, but only the Lord knows that are who are his, because we know that in the church there is a mixture of, of individuals. There are those who are truly regenerate, and there are sadly those who are sitting amongst our churches all over the world right now who may be false converts. But the Lord knows who are is, and He will sort them all out in the end. But this is what makes up the church of Jesus Christ. We also looked at a key passage regarding the authority of the church. Authority granted to her by Jesus Christ when He said, I will build my church. And he gave to his apostles what he called the keys to the kingdom of heaven. A very specific and unique authority granted to his apostles and then by extension to his church. And the exercise of those keys of the kingdom, the power of the keys, was to assess a person's confession of faith as well as to assess the character of their faith. And then to make an official pronouncement on behalf of God's heavenly kingdom. The church has the authority to assess a person's words, assess a person's deeds to see if they match up to a proper profession of Christ, and then to render judgment concerning their membership in Christ's church. Does someone's mouth style match their lifestyle, right? Do they're confessing to know Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, to obey the teachings of Christ, do life and confession match up? If so, we can say largely that they are part of the church of Jesus Christ, and we can welcome them into membership. We looked at how that was supposed to work in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 on how to deal, right, with a brother or sister who sins against us, right? There is a process outlined there to call someone to repentance, to call someone back to reconciliation, and it doesn't start with the pastor. It doesn't start with you asking your brother or sister to pray about a situation you're going through, with another brother or sister, right? It starts with you going directly to that person and calling them to repentance, right? And if they repent, you've, you've won your, your brother, your sister, and that's where it stops, right? It doesn't go any further than that. 
But if a person remains impenitent, what happens? There is a process. And the third step in that process is you tell it to the church. There's actually a a forum where the, the church gathered like this would hear the matter and could render judgment. And if that person is impenitent, then the church can say, well, their confession isn't lining up with what they're doing right now. They're in sin. We've called them to repentance. They're not repenting. Judgment can be rendered. And what does Jesus say? Put them out. Treat them like a pagan. Treat them like an unbeliever. That's, That's pretty severe, isn't it? But such is the authority that is given the church of Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? That the church is no ordinary organization. It's not a club like the YMCA that you can join if you want to, if you don't want to, you pay your dues, show up if you feel like it, cancel your membership at any time. The church is not like that. It's not like that at all. all right? So now I want us to look at this passage here in 1 Timothy and look at two important aspects of the lo- local church. We find Paul here writing to Timothy. His desire is to return to Ephesus, to come in person, to instruct the church, to teach the church. But he says if he's delayed, he wants to lay some of these things out in writing for Timothy to teach the church. All right? And here he expresses two main concerns in just these short three verses. One is the church's conduct, and the other is the church's confession. Their conduct and confession. And I want you to see that in light of what we've been talking about, the authority of the church to affirm, to assess a person's conduct, and their confession as well. He says here to Timothy, so that you may know how one ought to behave. Right? If I delay, here's some things I want you to share with the church so they, that, that you guys would know how to behave. And if you read up to this point in 1 Timothy, there's, there's largely three themes that emerge that Paul is instructing Timothy here. One was about right doctrine. Once again, to hold fast to the teaching of the faith, to, to be on guard against false teaching in the church. False teaching is not a problem just that we deal with today. It was right there in the early church. Okay? False teachers, false teaching creeping up in their midst. The second thing was right gender relations. And lastly, right spiritual leadership, talking about elders and deacons. Now, this letter would have been read publicly to the church. Timothy, maybe one of the other elders there, would have read this letter to the church to pass on this instruction to the people. And Paul wanted them to know how to behave themselves. Isn't that an odd thing? that we need to teach Christians how to behave themselves and conduct themselves. We teach our children how to behave, don't we? How many of you raising young kids are like, we want them to learn how to behave in the home, and we want to teach them how to behave in public, especially in public, because that's where they embarrass us the most, right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're in the store with them, and they're just throwing a tantrum, or you're in a, you're in a restaurant, and they're running around like crazy, right? We, we want our children to behave, and we employ all sorts of different things. Some of you bribe your kids. If you behave, I'll give you this candy. You can play with your toy. Some of you count to ten. One, you know, better behave. Two, I don't know what happens when you get to ten. It seems like some parents never get to ten, you know. They just let their kids do whatever. Some parents just have the look, and that just creates that conformity in the child, right? My dad could look at me that way when I was little, and I knew I was in trouble if I didn't behave, Right? Some of you whack your kids. Mom, remember you whacked me? Yeah, mom whacked me. Right? So, you know, 
We want our kids to behave. We want our children to know that there's right behavior and that there's wrong behavior. There's a right way to conduct yourself in this setting, and there's also a wrong way to conduct yourself in this setting here. And that's what Paul is saying here. Those who belong to the church need to know how to behave in relation to one another in the church. So Paul's giving Timothy, it seems here, who's the elder over this particular church, the charge to make sure he's teaching them how to behave rightly. Because there are rules. There's rules. There's rules in the church, just like there's rules in your home. You have family rules. Some of you might have gone to Hobby Lobby and bought that frame, family rules, and you, you post it in your living room, right? You know, <laughs> right? Be well-behaved, you know? Uh, use your manners, you know, have fun, be grateful, share. You know, we got to tell people these things, right? Keep your promises, right? All families have rules, spoken or unspoken, but the church has rules as well. The church, the family of believers has rules because the church is not a free-for-all. There is something unique about the church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else in this world like the church of Jesus Christ. And in the church, in the gathering of the saints like this, there's a right way to conduct ourselves and a wrong way to conduct ourselves. So Paul wants them to know that. Then he moves on here and he tells them why believers should know how to conduct themselves. Here's why it matters. And he gives three descriptors of the church that reveals something so profound about the church and why we should be conducting ourselves in a way that honors the Lord. He says, because the church is the household of God, because the church is, is, is the church of the living God, and because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's briefly look at those three. It's God's household. That word household is also the word used for family. The church is God's family. We're family. The church is not a business. Church is not just an organization. It is above all of those things, a family. Of which the head of our family, the father of our family is God. And we who have trusted Christ have been graciously adopted into his family. And if we're part of his family, that means that we've become his children. And guess what we are in relation to one another? Brothers and sisters, right? We're siblings. In Christ Jesus, that's what we are. You realize that's a higher value than your blood relationships? Because it's an eternal relationship. What you have with your blood relatives, your blood family, your, your, your husband, your wife, your father, your mother, your children... When we pass on into glory, that has ceased. The relationship that persists in all, in, through all eternity is the one we have in Christ Jesus. Our relationship to God is our Father, Jesus our elder brother, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Now, the thought of spending eternity with some of your brothers and sisters who maybe you don't get along with so well right now. I mean, some of you have, you know, a lot of sibling rivalry, right, in your familiar relationships, and there's some of that that takes place in the church, uh, but I will remind you of our, our destiny, right? We will be the perfected, sinless, spotless, redeemed, beautified bride of Jesus Christ, right, on that day when he returns for us. Um, so what we experience now is going to be all good on that day. 
But we need to get, know how to get along with one another here now, right? There, there's something about this relationship that is, that is fleshed out in all of these letters to the churches by, by the apostolic writers here to show us how we ought to live in relation to one another here, anticipating, right, that eternal glorious identity and relationship that you and I will experience when the Lord returns. And we need to conduct ourselves now with regard to one another in a manner that is fitting for that. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Who are you to do good to? You're to do good to everyone, but especially one another here, brothers and sisters in Christ. The second descriptor he uses here is that, that the church is the church of the living God. Not only is the church the family of God, the household of God, but it is also God's house. The church is the temple of the living God. The eternal, immortal living God is dwelling with His people. We spent a lot of time looking at that in our Revelation series. Ephesians 2.22 tells us, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what we are. That's what he's building us up into. It's no joke when we say that God is with us. When we say that here as we are gathered together, the Lord is here. His presence is with us. When we gather like this together on the Lord's day, there should be in us a greater awareness of the reality of his presence in our midst. I know I experience that. I know I sense that. And it's not just something subjective, it's something very clearly that the Scripture tells us is true. In our fellowship, in our worship, through the reading and exposition of His Word, meeting Him at His table, in how we love and encourage one another, the reality of His abiding presence is being pressed upon us. There's a greater glory assembling together with God's people than you and I could ever experience by ourselves. I know I've had some wonderful experiences with the Lord, you know, in worship and prayer and personal devotion, but nothing like what happens and the glory that happens when God's people are gathered together. It's how Jesus designed it. It's a great blessing. That's why we need the real thing. As great as digital church might be for those who physically cannot make it to a local gathering, there's no substitute for this. There truly is no substitute For God's people being together like this. Why do you think God's word strongly exhorts us to come together? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Are we drawing near to the day brothers and sisters? Certainly a lot closer than they were, right, when this letter was written to them. 2,000 plus years closer, right? Every day is a day closer to the day. How we ought to be gathering together, stirring one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another. Why? The day's coming. The day's approaching. Things are getting darker. Things are getting harder. We need one another. We need this gathering together. 
Thirdly, he says in this descriptor that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, some of your translations say pillar and foundation of the truth, and that word's okay, but the Greek word itself has in view a structural component that strengthens or stiffens or supports an existing framework, all right? In other words, the church is not the foundation, but the church, in essence, supports or strengthens this truth itself. Paul here is using uh, architectural terms to describe how the church is not just the household uh, of God of God or God's house itself, but it's also the home of God's truth, of God's word itself. Now, every believer in Ephesus had a, a particular fixture, a structure that they could look to that was absolutely majestic and magnificent. That was the temple of Diana or Artemis, all right? And this was, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple that was a a massive structure over a hundred ionic columns supporting a massive marble roof. It could be seen from a distance. Those columns were six stories high, Beautiful, gorgeous. So Paul's kind of using this illustration, these architectural terms to tell us something about the church in relation to God's word, God's truth here, right? The church has the responsibility to hold firmly to the truth, to strengthen itself with the truth, so as not to collapse under the weight of false teaching. Think about that survey we just referenced. If that doesn't tell us that the church, in large part, you know, to some degree, is collapsing under the weight of this of false teaching, of, of a lack of, of biblical truth and a biblical worldview, right? Many are not holding to the truth. What do pillars do? Pillars lift up the roof, right? Pillar, if the church is the pillar of the truth, what is the church doing? Then holding up the truth, lifting the truth up high so that it can be made visible to everyone, The church is both to undergird the truth and uphold the truth. This is what the church does. This is why God's word is central to all that we do here. It's the most important thing. Everything else is secondary to that. It is to be everything to us in the church, the foundation of our life. It is the mortar that holds us together in community. It is the bricks and stones that build us up as the temple of the living God by the Spirit. All three of those descriptors, Paul says, here's why you need to know how to conduct yourself. Think about who you are, the family of God. You're the temple of God. The living God is among you and with you, and you're to undergird and uphold the truth of God. How important it is that we learn to conduct ourselves the right way in the household of God. Then he moves on to the confession, his second main concern, the church's confession. They not only need to conduct themselves rightly, they also need to confess rightly. And it was a confession with respect to what they believed about Christ. Right theology matters. Make no mistake about it. Right Christology matters. There's some great surveys that have been done in regards to this, what people believe about Jesus Christ, and that would shock you as well. Ligonier does their State of the Church survey that is absolutely mind-blowing every time they do it, and you see how little people actually know about Jesus Christ and what they confess about Jesus Christ and how it is contrary to how he's revealed himself. It's astonishing, frankly. So he's he's talking about their confession here. 
This is the truth they must hold high and the truth they must safeguard against distortion. It's true then and it's true now. What we believe about Jesus is of eternal significance and importance. And we need to believe rightly. We need to confess rightly, right? Our faith is confessional. Notice he says, we confess. It's undeniable. It's absolutely certain what we're confessing. And what he does here now is he, he quotes a, what, what many consider to be an ancient hymn or creed. And we don't have time to go through the particular verses of that creed, but that's what he turns to here. So here's what we confess to be true about Jesus, the mystery of godliness. Now, when he talks about mystery here, he's not talking about something mysterious or something that cannot be uh, solved or remains unsolved. This is Paul's shorthand for, for referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ that was previously hidden and now has been disclosed. God's secret plan of redemption, right, that was veiled in the old covenant has now been completely unveiled, revealed, disclosed uh, in the new, right? So it's not anything hidden anymore. And these mysteries of Christ are great indeed, he says. They're profound, they are glorious, and they are to be confessed by all his followers. That's the truth we're called to undergird and uphold in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why teaching and preaching are central to what we do. It's why we teach in an expository fashion, that you know God's word, that you understand God's word, so that you can herald God's word in this world. It's important. It's all of our responsibility. It's not just mine. It's not just the pastor's. It's all of our responsibility. Many churches are truth deficient because its preachers and teachers are great storytellers, but they're not great Truth-tellers, you don't need great stories. You don't need to hear my personal reflections on my life. That's not what you need. You need the Word of God that can penetrate deep down into the heart, that pierces asunder soul and spirit, joint and marrow, as a discerner of the intents and motive of the heart. And it's God's Word by His Spirit that can transform you and conform you to Christ. That's what we need in the church today. And in these few verses, we see the authority given to the church here to assess and affirm the conduct and confession of its members. It's why you need to be part of a local church. This is what we do in community. We say who's a Christian and who's not. On what basis? Their profession and their life. Does their life match that profession? And frankly, that is one of the reasons a lot of people don't want to be part of a local church. Who wants that scrutiny? And like I said last week, does the church get this wrong a lot? Yeah. Does the church abuse this? Yes. But it doesn't invalidate the reality of the church's authority and responsibility to do that. Now I want to switch gears for a few minutes and talk about what it means to be part of a local church uh, and what is church membership itself, right? What does it mean to be part of a local church? Right? We talk about joining a church or becoming a member of a church, but that's not exactly accurate. You don't really join a church. You're already part of the universal church of Jesus Christ if you've, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior. What you actually do is you submit yourself to a local church. Right? This is, in essence, what's happening. Again, it's not like joining a Y. It's not like paying your dues. You're actually placing yourself right, in submission to a local body of believers. You submit to a local church much like you submit to your family, 
or you submit to your government, things that we are told by Scripture to submit ourselves to already. So it's not, from the standpoint of the Christian faith, it is not a voluntary association okay, that we engage in. The local church is an authority over your life established by the head of the church. Who is? It's Jesus Christ, right? The founder and head of the church. Now, authority's tough, isn't it? Submitting to authority. In our culture, it's extremely challenging. People resist it. People reject it. People don't want authority. They want independence. They want self-autonomy. And unfortunately, that is contrary to everything revealed to us in the Word. Scripture clearly teaches that we are to submit ourselves to the authorities that Christ has appointed and established over us. So when we talk about submitting to the local church, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first of all, you are submitting yourself to other believers in obedience to Christ. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is one of those one another's people don't like. There's probably a lot of the one another's that people don't like, but this is one of them, right? Submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Reverence for Christ, we submit to one another in the local church context. Why? For accountability, for mutual support, for encouragement, to live out these one another's because that's what family members do. That's what family members are expected to do in the household of God. You're also submitting yourself to the local church's leadership in obedience to Christ. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage for you. So you see these two groups of submission here. Other believers submit to ourselves out of reverence for Christ. Submit to those who are in spiritual authority and leadership over us, appointed by God. That should be qualified leadership, let me say that, right? Because Jesus appointed spiritual leaders, elders, pastors as a spiritual authority uh, over the local church. And there's an exhortation built into this uh, here, not to wear out uh, those who lead you, not to beat them down, right? Those of you who've been in ministry a while know you can get beat down pretty hard, uh, in the church here. But he says here, it's not to your advantage to do that. What you don't want is your pastor's praying for the Lord to move you to another church. <laughs> oh, Lord, give me grace to love them because I really hate them. If it pleases you, Lord, move them to Holy Cross or to First Baptist or one of the other churches down the street. You don't want, you don't want those right in leadership over you praying that way. But here's what's important here. Notice what the leader's responsibility is. To keep watch over your souls. Keep watch over your souls. And they're going to have to give to account. Like, I'm going to have to give an account. You know, I think one of the things that terrifies me is that I'm going to stand before the Lord, have to give an account how I've watched over the souls of those that God has entrusted here. That God has, has placed me as an under-shepherd here. Under the chief shepherd. I'm going to have to give account and how I've watched over your souls. It's a terrifying thing, right? So it's not like that the person you're submitting yourself to in leadership is outside of the realm of accountability, not as it concerns the Lord one bit here, okay? So these two groups of people you're to submit yourself to in the local church context. 
for a number of reasons, right? And I'm going to talk just about a few. We could spend weeks talking about different reasons and going through a million passages in the scripture regarding the local church and its importance of submitting yourself to a local church. But I'm just going to give you a few here. Number one is spiritual protection. We need one another. We have a very real enemy, right, that seeks to destroy us, to divide us, to discourage us, to tempt us, to lure us away in many different uh, capacities. So we need to encourage one another in the faith. We need to be relationally connected with other believers who can call us to account, who can pray for us, who can encourage us, who can rebuke us, who can correct us who can strengthen us when we are weak, who will have our backs spiritually, how important that is. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to do that. We're to exhort one another this way, right? We have an enemy that wants to destroy us. We are tempted. We are weak. How awesome it is to be able to call a brother to pray for me or to call a sister via text or text her and say, could you, could you pray for me? I'm going through a really challenging time today. Uh, you know, I love receiving those texts and, and many times I will text that way out ourselves. Uh, and, and we need to do that. We need one another. We also need elders to exercise oversight of your life to protect you from false teaching and from wolves. There are a lot of wolves out there. A lot of wolves. And we, we have a responsibility uh, before God to protect you from those who would lure you away from the faith. Another reason uh, this, this aspect of submitting to ourselves to a local church's importance is participation in the Lord's Supper. Both the institution and meaning of the Lord's Supper indicate that believers are to come together for the meal. That assumes a corporate dimension, not an individual one. Okay? Now, it's in vogue, it's fashionable today for people to participate in private communion and, and take it by themselves. But that's not how the meal was instituted by our Lord. Okay? He gathered with his disciples. And what did he tell them to do? He told them to take and divide it amongst themselves. Luke 22, Paul's admonishment in 1 Corinthians 11. We talked about it last week. You know, they were... Coming to the table of the Lord and, and, and abusing one another and in, in, in how they participated in it. But he talked to them. The exhortation he gave them there was in the context of their coming together as a church. And they're coming together to, to participate in the meal. They were observing it in an unworthy fashion and manner. And he was bringing correction to them. It's why we fence the table by giving an exhortation that, that this meal is only for those we're part of the church of Jesus Christ, those who have trusted Jesus Christ and him alone for their salvation. We ask those who have not done that to abstain from this meal because it is for the saints of God. Another reason here is the one another passages. You have 59 explicit commands in the New Testament letters to show how we are to relate to one another in the local church. All the things we are to do with one another. That pronoun used there in the Greek, alelon, means mutuality, reciprocity, right? It's not a one-way street, right? This is what we do for one another. All the one another's that you find there happen in the context of the local church family. I said it last week, you cannot one another one another without being with one another, okay? 
That may sound like tongues, but it's not. Okay? You can't do that by yourself. You don't want another yourself. You want another one another. How does that happen? We've got to be together. We've got to gather together. We have to be in our presence. Look at that. Love one another. Be at peace with one another. Bear one another's burden. For, forgive one another. Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another. Be subject to one another. Esteem one another more than yourself. Do not lie to one another, right? Speak the truth to one another. Comfort one another. Encourage and build one another up. Outdo one another in showing honor. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. And greet one another with a holy kiss. How many of you practice that? It's good to do that. Spiritual gifts is another reason. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that the Spirit gave gifts. Why? For the common good, for the edification of the church. The divine intention has been to equip individual members for the purpose of building up the whole church of Jesus Christ. And it says that the Spirit gave to each individually spiritual gifts, right? And the context of the operation of those gifts is for the whole church. It's for the whole church. Interesting, the reality that we've been given spiritual gifts means that we should approach the local church from the perspective of how can I employ my spiritual gifts to edify and build up the church, right? Instead of how most people approach church, what can the church do for me, right? How can the church build me up, right? So it's important that we see that, right? This possession of the gift is a charge. It's a stewardship. And we must seek to use it for the benefit of the whole body. We can't do that apart from the visible body of believers, okay? Each of you have been given by God gifts, a disposition, a personality, even a past that was not given to you so that you alone might be the sole beneficiary of all of those grace gifts that God has given you. But all of those pieces have to come together in the body of Christ to encourage, build up, and make whole the church of Jesus Christ. When you refuse to do that, your faith is, is diminished, right? It's distorted, and there's, it's a diminished version of what you and the church could be. And your, sanctifi- your sanctification, frankly, depends on submitting yourself to a local church. You know, some of the greatest complaints, you know, we hear about the local church is what? It's full of hypocrites, or the church is irrelevant to my life. The church is, is boring, right? There's, there's so many arguments used to denigrate the visible church and to avoid membership in it. But when I read the New Testament here, and I look at all of the references to the church and things that happened in these New Testament first century churches, it, it's fascinating. The New Testament doesn't ever indicate that this covenant community that comes together as a local church is perfect. It never mentions the church as being just completely holy, you know, uh, or, or pure, you know, and angelic. You know, doesn't refer to the local church like that at all. So doesn't the existence of problems in these churches mentioned in the Bible beg the question regarding membership? Think about this. Let me explain a little further. Just some of the examples here in the New Testament. The schism in Corinth the growing heresy in Galatia, the negative influence of Hymenaeus and Philetus in Ephesus under Timothy's ministry, the strife that was present in Philippi, the weird heresies in Colossae, the growing defection among Hebrew Christians that the writer of Hebrew mentions, 
the Gnostic type of influence in the church to whom John writes, false teachers against whom Jude and Peter warn. Lots of problems. Lots of whack stuff going on there, right? And then how about the seven churches in Asia Minor that we read about and studied in, in Revelation? All but two churches escaped strong rebukes, right? He addressed heresy. He addressed false teaching, immorality, all of that. The phenomena, the sheer existence of these problems teach us something of the nature of the early church. She was never wholly pure. She was a mixed body who was always weak and fraught with problems from within and from without, yet they did not stop being churches. The problems meant that the visible body of professing believers was functioning together. Church is messy. Real community is messy. Your families are messy, aren't they? Who has the perfect family? Raise your hand so we can worship you. <laughs> Nobody has that. Our, ch- our families are dysfunctional. Our, def- our families are jacked up and whacked. Well, we bring that into the church, don't we? That's what, what's made up here. Real community can be painful, it can be awkward, it's hard. But it is where the overflow of God's grace manifests itself in the greatest measure. Problems arose in these churches because these believers obeyed Christ in meeting together. It's because they worshiped together, it's because they had elders, it's because they were attempting to live in fellowship and were committed to each other that problems came about as a result of those things. Now, when we talk about sanctification, we talk about that as being something that happens to us individually. God working in us to to conform us to Christ, to purify us, to make us holy, to our growth in godliness and Christ-likeness. But it's also something that not just happens to us individually, but corporately as well. Because the challenges we face in the church, in relationship to one another, are meant to grow us up are meant to make us holy, are meant to make us like Jesus. And we're not going to have that apart from the messiness of church. We're called to be committed to believers who have problems. We're called to be committed to believers who are not perfect. We're called to be committed to believers who are still struggling, who are tempted, who are weak, who are frail, And for us to have the attitude that we're going to stay away from that because those things are present in the church is arrogant and sinful. Frankly, is. For all her weaknesses, the local church is still part of the bride of Christ, his body. The weakness, the failings, the problems, the hypocrites within show us that the church is actually trying to obey. So we'll persevere in it, right? And allow God to use that for our growth and godliness. Now, these are some of the things that it means to submit ourselves to the local church. And sadly, there are scores of professing Christians who are not connected uh, to the church for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, They're not willing to submit themselves to the local church, but that places them outside of the safety and growth um, that happens in the context when you're part of the local gathering of believers, okay? It's really important. 
And this is why we talk about formalizing membership and what that looks like. So I want to just kind of segue briefly into that. What is church membership? I'm going to use this definition from Nine Marks Ministry because uh, uh, I think it, it really encapsulates what it, it means. And here's the definition. Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Now, I want you to take note of some of the elements referenced in that description. The first is that the church exercises their authority that we talked about earlier to formally affirm the individual's profession of faith and to affirm it as something credible, right? It's valid, sincere, it's real. The church also commits to giving oversight to that individual's discipleship, right? I also like to use the word spiritual formation, right? Because that's kind of what's taking place there. Uh, Discipleship always seems to have the reference of a class you go to. That's not discipleship, right? It's it's you being spiritually formed into Christ-like character. And lastly, the other element is the individual formally submits his or her spiritual formation or discipleship to the authority of this body and its leaders. It's kind of like the exchange of vows in a marriage covenant, right? In a wedding ceremony. In essence, that's what you're doing. That's why we call it covenant membership, right? Using kind of the language of covenant itself. The church is saying to the individual, we affirm, we recognize that your profession of faith, that your baptism and your discipleship are valid. So we're going to put our, you know, stamp of approval, our seal of approval on you as a Christ follower. As far as we can tell, you're a Christian. So we publicly affirm and acknowledge You as belonging to Christ, and we commit ourselves to your spiritual oversight. That's what the church, that's the commitment the church then is making to the individual. The leaders of the church, the elders say to the individual, we promise to oversee your spiritual growth through teaching and preaching, watching over your soul, and praying for you. And the individual then says to the church, I recognize you as a faithful gospel-confessing church with qualified leaders, so I submit myself and my discipleship to your care and oversight. That's, in essence, what formalizing that membership looks like, that relationship, right? It's an expression of mutual responsibility to one another. It's not a one-way street. Now, I've been part of churches. When you, you read through their membership material, it's all about what the, what the individual is supposed to do for the church. No, no, no. It's, it's a two-way street here. There's responsibility on both sides that happens here. Church towards you and you towards the church, the larger body of believers. That's the way it works. That's the way it is, right? Uh, it's an expression of that mutual responsibility. And, and formalizing membership in the local, local church helps us to live by the family rules and preserve and defend our confession of faith. Why is this important? Because if you and I agree to say we are going to live together, right, as part of a family of believers like this in the local church, then we can hold one another accountable to that. It is frustrating, you know, to live, you know, that you think you're doing life with people in the context of this, and you then someone sins against you, and you go to them, and they're like, hey, wait, I didn't agree to that, right? We've all experienced things like that. 
you know, or that, you know, they don't see that they're in sin or they don't see that what they're doing is wrong or how it can be uh, divisive or cause strife in the community, you know, of believers. This is how we're to live. And this is not just the responsibility of the pastor, brothers and sisters. This is each member's responsibility. We all have a role in how the church functions and how the church lives out all the things that we're taught, all of the apostolic teaching and how we preserve the teaching in the church. This is why it's imperative that you know God's word. The constant admonition and exhortation here is what? Know your word, know the word, know the word, know the truth. Right? That way we all safeguard one another. If someone comes in, hey, well, you know, Jesus really didn't come in the flesh, you know. No, y'all can go, hey, that's, that's a lie, that's a heresy, well, they come with some whack teaching out of left field over here because we know the truth, because we defend the truth, we uphold the truth, and undergird the truth, then any one of you can address that. That's how we protect one another here. That's how we safeguard one another. This is why it's important. This is why it matters that you be part of it. And look, I know. Listen, we all have the scars of how we've been wounded in the church. Every single person here, no doubt in this room, has a story to tell. My back has been flayed open a number of times by other church members, right? I will put my stories up against yours. (laughs) I have beaten, I've been slandered, I've been maligned, you name it, it's happened, okay? And many of you have the same experiences in church. Some of you just had sucky pastors. You just really have. You know, some of them have sinned against you. Some of them have abused you spiritually or in other ways. Some of them have used you. I've experienced that, man. I've served under pastors that it's just what you did for them. You know, that's all that matters. That's not how we do things here. And just because you've experienced that, you know, I... My continual prayer for, for all of us here is that we find healing in Christ, you know, from those wounds that have been inflicted uh, upon us in other environments and other spiritual communities. But we're endeavoring here to, to build a healthy community of faith here that seeks to glorify God and uplift Jesus and, and deepen ourselves relationally here in a way that honors God completely. I live my life among the flock of God here. There's no hierarchy here. Nobody here is mowing my lawn. Nobody here is washing my car. I won't allow it. I'm a servant of the Lord. We're to serve one another in this place. And I'm sorry you experienced that hurt in other environments, in other church communities. I want you to know that the chief shepherd has seen those things. And he's going to hold every one of those people to account. No one gets away with it. No one will if they don't repent. That's what we can hold fast to. And and that's the promise that we have in all of this. But I don't want you in one moment to walk away thinking that this is just, it's not worth it. It is absolutely worth it. This community of faith is so beautiful. I'm so honored to be part of this church family. It's the most glorious thing I've ever experienced in my life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's beautiful. It's brutal. It's messy. I wouldn't have it any other way. 
And I want all of you to be part of that. I want all of you to be part of that. Now, some of you have been part of our fellowship for a little for a little while, and, and have asked, "How do we formalize membership?" Well, we're going to be we're going to be hosting a membership covenant class here in June. So, what I want to encourage you to do uh, is, if you go to sent.life, uh, there is a card there on that home page. Just fill out a short form. Let us know that that's what you want to be part of. What we're going to do is we are going to schedule that class probably mid-June. We're going to send you out our membership covenant, our theological convictions, our statement of faith. You can review all of those things. If there's questions, um, you can uh, ask them ahead of time. You can ask them that day, right? And we're going to, we will go through all of that process there. It's nothing crazy. It's nothing crazy. It's just our family rules. That's all it is, right? And our family rules... Or God's word, right? We're just summarizing those things so we know how to conduct one ourselves in the household of God, and we know our common confession of faith here, right? We don't confess different things, right? We have a common confession of faith, especially concerning Jesus Christ and his salvation. So that is of supreme importance. Now, you may say, if I'm not a formal member, my second class attendee here, no, you're not. Not at all, all right? But there are blessings that, that when you formalize your relationship here and how we live towards one another, that is, is truly edifying and God-glorifying there. So I want to encourage you to do that. Lastly, I will say this. We live in, um, we live in a culture here of low commitment. You know, uh, frankly, there are organizations that have a much deeper commitment level than most churches have, right? You know, much deeper and stricter uh, obligations, you know, than most churches have. We're in a highly consumeristic culture, right? It's, again, it's what can the church do for me? Does the church have A, B, C, and D? This is what I'm looking for in the church. You know, you're not going to find the perfect church. I've looked. It's not there. Some of you have looked a lot, you haven't found it yet. There is no perfect church. You know that, right? And not to approach the church in that fashion, you know. Not as consumers, right? They're part of the family. So we live as family here. To be part of a local church, to submit yourself to a local church is countercultural. It's one of the greatest things we can do, right? To thumb our nose at, at the prevailing culture that's low commitment, no authority, no submission, is to say, we're going to submit ourselves to a local body of believers. We're going to live this way to honor the Lord, right? Super important. Local church, local church matters, all right? Let me pray for us uh, today. Uh, you know, we, we have uh, a number of things to pray for here as, as we close out our service today. Uh, but I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, know, know this. None of this message is to guilt any of you into doing anything here. It's for you to respond in obedience to Christ. That's it. You obey him. You obey him in these things. And, and hopefully if you've been here a while, you've already seen this is, this is how we live. This is not news to you. At all, you know, but this is how we choose to to obey Christ and to live one another and, and mutually edify our lives this way in submission to one another for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.